0: About to enter a world gone now for millennia, so central to being human that even after 5,000 years of spiritual war against it, this ancient world remains in every moment, at every depth of our being. This source, this center, is the divine feminine.
1: Hello, and welcome to Women Out Loud. I'm Kath Duncan. This weekend, while some of us celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ, eat matzah around the Passover table, lie back and chew chocolate, or whatever, a number of women will remember goddesses, past and present. Today, we're exploring goddess worship.
2: If I say the word goddess, what do you think of?
1: Oh, Egyptian queen.
3: (laughs) Someone close to God.
4: Aphrodite.
5: I think of... A woman, kind of very tall, statuesque, pretty long blonde hair for some reason, I'm not sure. Or Statue of Liberty, Um, Madonna. (laughs) Women. uh,
6: Romance. Power. I guess I think of the sort of primeval
4: forces of women.
5: Beautiful woman. But beauty in, in every sense, you know, not uh, not, not but this inner sort of glowing, beautiful being, you know, whatever it is, if it's a, in which shape
0: or form, that, that's what comes to mind.
1: If you don't know who goddesses are, well, just about every cultures worship them at some stage, and some still do. You may have heard of the Greek, Roman, and Egyptian goddesses, and there's also African, Indian, Celtic, and Aboriginal great female spirits. Easter itself was the celebration of a great goddess.
6: Easter was uh, originally the Spring Equinox Feast, and it was named after the goddess Esther. So the Spring Equinox Feast is actually called Eostar, and in the Southern Hemisphere that would be held in September. Of course in the Northern Hemisphere it is held in uh, April, and that's why the Christians celebrate their Resurrection Feast at the same time. But of course the Southern Hemisphere Christians don't realise that they're totally out of touch and they're having their resurrection feast in the middle of autumn.
1: <laughs> so what do southern goddess people do at uh, around Easter? Um, well, Halloween is actually approaching. We've just had Maybon, which is the autumn equinox,
6: and uh, Halloween is coming up because we're going into the darkness. It's the time of harvest. With Halloween, you're celebrating with the earth. It's uh, poised between death and conception. It's uh, in between those two worlds. And so uh, the story is, is that... The God is sailing across the sunless sea which is the womb of the mother, and stepping ashore the shiny isle which is the egg of rebirth. And that's what we're celebrating at this time of year.
1: That's Glennis Livingstone, who did her MA in theology and philosophy at Berkeley. The origins of goddess worship lie in artifacts and statuettes of women found in European sites going back thirty thousand years. Everyone agrees the statues exist, but what's in question is just what they mean and what they were used for.
7: Well, the earliest civilizations of the world were all matristic. The goddess worship was there in China, in the Near East, in Europe, in Americas. So we can say that this was a universal goddess in the very beginning. And uh, when we have the explosion of art in the Upper Paleolithic, which started about forty thousand to thirty-five thousand before now there appear various types of figurines or goddesses, so they are already many. So there are several possibilities, but when we have more sources, more material, we can see that we can combine the functions into one single goddess, because the goddess was nature itself.
0: Maria Gimbutas, professor emeritus of archeology span at UCLA, is one of the world's eminent scholars on prehistoric Europe. The importance of her work has been to brush aside the prevailing male-dominant presuppositions of archeology span and boldly put forth her own feminine-centered vision of a time when Western civilization flourished without war or hierarchical oppression and scarcity, when towns were unguarded by Cyclopean walls and art was graceful, life-affirming, and devoid of violence. The idea that the primary symbol of divinity would, as in the Christian era, consist of a man slowly being tortured to death, was unthinkable.
1: That's from an interview with historian Maria Gimbutas. Her theories were highly acclaimed in the 70s among feminists, so much so that some even called her the goddess. Unfortunately, Maria died in 1993, so she's not around to hear her work come under scrutiny by 90s academics.
8: When you say what kind of worship was involved, Um, there's a lot of difficulty in actually specifying that and I guess one of the reasons why the goddess is a controversial topic at this period is that most of the work that people do on prehistoric society is essentially reconstructive, it has to be because you have no access to the minds of the people, they leave documentation nil, they leave mute artifacts. Sometimes the artifacts are less mute than others i mean some artifacts do speak some things are found for example in ritual contexts, indicating shrines possibly containing offerings and various other things like that sometimes though what you get is a statuette just a thing and you think well what's it for so when you're talking about the goddess obviously the statuettes are very important and many people have studied them uh, and have postulated from them a sort of universal worship of the great mother and they look at the statues and they say, okay, there's the thin, flat-chested version, this is the goddess' maiden. Then there's the voluptuous, heavily pregnant version, this is the goddess' mother. And then in some cases, for example, such as the deity's known as the genii cuculati in the Celtic mythology, you have the hooded crone, and this is the goddess in age, so the aspects maiden, mother, and crone. Um This is fine, okay, you know, there's nothing wrong with such an interpretation, but in in terms of generalising from what these goddesses represent to what the worship surrounding them was like, to what the societal organisation that that worship took place in was like, is joining together a chain of very fragile ifs. Carol Cusack, lecturer
1: in Religious Studies at Sydney University. When she says the goddess is a subject of some controversy, she's referring to the arguments among historians and feminists, and what we might call New Ages, about the nature of prehistoric cultures. Murray Tulip is a teacher of women's spirituality, who's been exploring goddess worship for 20 years. She rejects any suggestion that goddess figurines are merely mute relics.
3: So when you say mute, mute fact, mute object or something, they're not mute at all. Mm -hmm. And we, can nev- we can't know how people felt in the wars of Napoleon or, you know, a hundred years ago. We don't. History is always from the point of view of the present to some extent. And any reconstruction is a reconstruction from a modern consciousness. So a lot of those uh, attacks are just garbage. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't some point in them. There is. But it has to be, uh, I mean, the the thing about egalitarian is that a lot of the that the houses or dwellings were the same size, the graves had similar amount of stuff in them. Um, there wasn't sort of one huge grave full of everything valuable, and other little ignored graves. Um, I mean, it's evidence like that. So it's not just mute artifacts or whatever. The artifacts are not mute at all. And if you go to Gnosis and uh, which was ex- excavated by Arthur Evans in early this century, I think. And and just see the, the exuberance of the art and the, uh, the celebration of women and, and the strength of, of the women, strength and beauty of women, compared with, if you look at images of women in art in the 50s, say, in 1950s, women are just fragmented, torn to shreds half the time. I mean, y- y- Uh, you can use intuition and understanding and wisdom history isn't just sort of absolute
7: fact ever this is a figurine of ivory from southern France from Les dated to 23,000 BC what do we see here we see her breasts her buttocks but the other parts are neglected, are reduced to nothing. Her legs are tapering, her head is not showing much, no features. Her tiny hands are on her breast. This is important to see that her hands are on her breast. So she is emphasizing her breast. So maybe we can interpret her as a nourisher of humanity. As a bringer of food, of life, protection.
9: There there are a lot of figurines, and they span something like um, 26,000 B.C. um, Up until the present, if you'd like to think of plastic figures of Virgin Mary and Barbie. I mean, people have always been making figures of some sort. It's very dangerous to sort of advocate a cultural and geographical stasis, that we argue that this is the same thing, that this is a deity and it must represent the same deity from Paleolithic France um, to Bronze Age Knossos in the Mediterranean um, to, to Stonehenge. I mean all these things can't necessarily be lumped together. It's a very outmoded way of thinking and I think it's very dangerous.
1: Lynne Meskel who's doing a PhD in archaeology at Cambridge University. She recently gave a paper at the Women in Archaeology Conference in Sydney which questioned the reading of the Goddess Figurines particularly in Maria Gumbartis's theories. The paper created a storm.
9: Um, certainly you have to allow for the context of these finds, most of which in the Balkan area, for example, are found in, in refuse pits, in, in rubbish areas. So it's not that they were placed in graves necessarily at all. They, are, they vary enormously.
1: Isn't it difficult though to reconcile? I mean, in the, in the process of talking to people, I've talked to people who've sworn to me that you know at least some of this evidence from Gimbutas's research is accurate, and you're saying that it's not, and it's really hard to know who's telling yeah. the truth in this story. How do you how do you respond to that? Uh,
9: a lot. Of, I'm not saying that the figurines um, aren't there. There certainly are a lot of figurines. What I'm saying is that there's a sort of misrepresentation um for example she often claims that when there are male figures with um male genitalia for example she discounts these as being male and says well this is either androgynous or bisexual or still represents the divine mother um these sorts of not being actually accurate to the evidence
1: isn't that very much what has happened throughout history, though? I mean, it's very rare that history just stands as being unmisrepresented, or, you know, we're always sort of making assumptions about what we've found and what it means. Why is this any different?
9: Well, I think it might be a condition of um, the postmodern era that we are starting to check ourselves a lot more. Um, we're starting to look at our own scholarship and that of other people's and um, and trying to see what what influences, what cultural biases they've brought in and how that's affected the data. And that's something that archaeology of the nineties is critically aware of. Um, we now see that we all write our own fictions and our own narratives. And the the mother goddess Meta narrative is a is a really good example of where archaeology is, is used in a very socio political context today. It's become very important. Lynn, how
1: would you describe what happened during and after the paper that you gave what was the scene like from where you were standing
9: um it was very interesting i expected that it might be controversial um most of the academic or the archaeological community there i think were quite relieved because it's something that people have felt very strongly about for a long time but nobody has really been willing or very few people i guess have been willing to come out and confront it because many women um and feminists and i'm a feminist archaeologist myself feel that to critique other women you know is is on you're landing on dangerous territory there and of course men um interestingly enough fear the backlash of being sexist Mm. so male archaeologists are certainly not willing to confront these issues but it's very timely and it's very important that the general public have an idea of 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 what a lot of these claims rest on um unlike most of the of the new age writers i don't see the need to validate and search out and find these cultures that were matriarchal because the the evidence for that sort of social structure just doesn't survive in the material records so um that's very tenuous so i was just um trying to put those ideas forward and give people the other side um which you know hasn't really come out that much and people were very supportive and yet there were there were obviously groups who felt Their own belief systems were then under attack, and it doesn't necessarily have to be like that at all. Um, It's just that we don't have to keep looking backwards. I think that's the interesting part. And I I don't necessarily think we have to borrow and and sort of um, appropriate other people's cultures. I I just think the way forward is is obviously with our own progress in 20th century society. Well, I think a certain amount of argument is always healthy, but when you think about our
6: origins, it seems obvious that it was martyr mother or female deity uh, that was understood as the source of all being you only have to think about our own you know immediate origins you don't have to be an archaeologist to comprehend that it's actually more of a curiosity that the god arose at all and took over i think really the work of um Maria Gembutis and Merlin Stone is, is only beginning to be taken seriously and I don't think it's in any way been successfully debunked at this stage. We've only scratched the surface yet.
1: But I suppose that a lot of people would say, well, a lot of women want to believe that that was the case, don't they? Um, well, yes,
6: and I, I don't think there's any harm in... Um, living by the stories that you want to live by. I think anything is possible and probably everything has happened that you can imagine (laughs) at any time in history. So I don't think it does any harm to use one's imagination and live by the stories that one wants to live by.
10: That was Glennis Livingston again. I felt a need for like spiritual belief and spiritual connection but I couldn't find any satisfaction with conventional religions. Like when I was about In my early adolescence, I um, explored Judaism and Christianity and Islam and read a lot about a whole lot of different religions and like, you know, some of them said kind of nice things, but none of them really enthralled me. And I really felt that I needed something that allowed me to express feminism and a love of women and a respect for women and a respect for the earth and the environment. I'm um, in my spiritual life as I try to do that in my everyday life.
1: That's Elizabeth. Her quest for her own spirituality led her to a group of women who practice celebrations that other people may well call witchcraft or wicca, but this has its roots in goddess worship.
10: So I kind of just drifted into women's spirituality and started reading a whole lot of books like Starhawk and um, you know Susanna Budapest and a whole lot of those texts that are quite well known. But it wasn't until maybe two and a half years ago that I actually got into organised celebrations with a group of um, women that I met through a connection at work, actually. And we're a lesbian group. And these women were celebrating. They would come together on an organised basis to celebrate the equinoxes and solstices. So I started celebrating autumn equinox two years ago. And since then, I've been celebrating those um, festivals and the cross-quarter days, which are Halloween, Beltane, Candlemas and Lammas.
1: More on Elizabeth's celebrations later. (coughs) Whatever you may (coughs) think about witchcraft, there's no denying that the stories and myths of goddesses are powerful. The goddess is worshipped in many villages throughout Asia. At Tiananmen Square in 1989, students raised a wax statue of the goddess of democracy. In India, Hindus worship the great goddess Shakti, the active partner of the god Shiva. And in Tibet, Tara is a full Buddha who incarnates only in female form. Everyone has their favourites.
10: Got a real soft spot for Hecate actually mm-hmm. because she's the guardian of the underworld and the, the psyche, and that's very connected with the moon, which has always been seen as representing your sort of um, emotional um, side, the female side, if you like. Not that I agree with that, but that's how it's been seen and represented. And also thresholds like the guardian of the underworld, guardian of, of doorways, um, which is also like the doorways within yourself so it's like if i do any kind of major work around um, self transformation in some way or come upon some um, life crisis that is so challenging that i actually need to shift something within myself to deal with it you know as we all do but just name in different ways then hecate is often the person that i Invoke at that time for strength and for courage because she is the person who watches over all that stuff Like she's a bit of a dark goddess to invoke in some ways because those sides of yourself are powerful and secret and scary And um, But you're not scared? Well no, um, I'm not scared It's not comfortable that's for sure to be going through those kinds of transitions But I think that perhaps one reason Hecate is seen as fearful is because because it's so uncomfortable, a lot of people see that part of their lives as fearful, so they just project them away and make it evil and bad and awful, and I think that's what's happened with um, with Hecate.
1: Now, when one thinks of goddesses, one does not immediately think of menstrual cycles. But in your research, what sort of indications have there been
4: of you know goddesses and a connection to menstruation? Perhaps that's because we haven't paid much attention to the dark goddesses. Most of the goddesses that have been, uh, well, that's not totally true, like in a lot of American writing around the goddesses, they have looked at, say, um, Lilith, who was Adam's first wife, who um, refused to sleep underneath him and um, was sort of, well, flew away and became demonized, basically. But her story is pretty rich and fascinating. Um, and she's definitely a dark goddess. And all the dark goddesses are to do with the menstrual end. So it's almost like a psychic split, isn't it?
1: Between yeah. the, the light and the dark.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, and that relates to, oh, you know, it relates to the sort of psychic split in Western woman, really. It's like, I, I mean, I personally think that there's a huge sort of richness to be found by contacting and affirming and um the dark end the menstrual end of our cycles which the black madonna and all the other dark goddesses sort of are much more connected to and they're they're about the psychic end as well and the dreaming end and giving birth to yourself rather than to babies which is the white ovulating white madonna end <laughs>
6: oh, well one of my favorite images is this um bird-headed snake goddess, and she comes from 5,000 years before the Common Era, and she stands proud with her arms raised, and um, her her form speaks of a concern with expression, the making of soul and spirit, and yet she's part creature form, and also speaks of an at-oneness with matter and nature. Um, Those realities were not separate. Dualism did not exist at some time, if one can begin to imagine such a reality, um the other favorite goddess of mine is artemis artemis is um, a virgin goddess a spiritual warrior virgin in the old sense meant um, at one with herself um, she passionately protects herself and urges forward the creative spirit the virgin of old had nothing to do with um unbroken hymens <laughs> the virgin of old was much more concerned with her freedom and she could well be promiscuous and still virgin um, I like Artemis because she's uh, she nurtures new beginnings and brings and encourages new life.
8: Do I have a favorite goddess? I have a couple they're mostly Celtic. Mm-hmm. I would have to be very uh, fond of the figure known as scaakk, who is the goddess who is the tutor of young men in the arts of, um, of military ability. She's a, she's a goddess of armaments and, and uh, military practices. I like her because she's a bit of a, an iconoclastic figure. I mean, we think about women and aren't women peaceful and non-military? and? Lovely? I think that Kathak opens the possibilities for defense, for vigor, for various other things. I, I think she's a good perspective. A couple of the Hindu goddesses I have some uh, sympathy and some attraction to. It's hard to pass over Kali because she's just so astounding and I think that she is also a very great corrective again to the notion of women as passive and kindly and and nurturing. Kali is horrific. She symbolises the inevitability of chaos, death, agony, poverty, pain which we're all going to live with whether we like it or not. And that's why she is celebrated because her chaos is creative and the Indian people call upon her as mother and find protection. And this is something that I actually like about Indian mythology, actually. There are goddesses of smallpox and goddesses of cholera. The goddess in her terrifying aspect is as important in most of the great goddess-worshipping cultures of the world as the goddess in her nurturing aspect. You know? And so there are nurturing goddesses. I find them a little bit less interesting, I guess, because having not chosen the traditional female path of motherhood and those sorts of things, they don't speak very strongly to me. I find some of the more frivolous goddesses of sexuality very funny. Freya in Scandinavian mythology, the woman of whom it is said she'd slept with all the gods, all the giants, her own brother, most of the dwarves, and even some animals, mostly so that she could get things out of them, who's a classic manipulative figure, but she's strong, sh- and, and in a culture where uh, deviant sexuality, where women's sexuality is quite strongly policed in actual human society, she stands apart as a figure who does what she likes, and suffers no acrimony as a result of it, which is quite an attractive thought when you think about it. I've never felt a great affinity for the classical goddesses, mm-hmm. as I see them as being... Um, somewhat watered down somewhat literalized already the ones that emerge most immediately are like carly because they're actually contemporary subjects of worship and you can see what how people react to them Carol cusack and before her glennis livingston julie cunningham
1: and elizabeth among cultures that still worship goddesses are australia's indigenous people although they don't use the word goddess they talk about great female spirits and these spirits are still with us, their stories having been passed down through a great oral tradition. Pauline MacLeod.
11: When the world was young in the dream time, by the Creator God, he came down from the spirit world and he had decided that he was going to make the earth the way it is today. He decided to make the land first. First he made deserts and plains and mountain regions. And then after he had made that, he decided to furnish it with plants, and he put all different types of plants. Plants that live in the desert, plants that live in the bush, plants that live in the plains. And then after he had done that, he decided to add water, um, beautiful springs, and beautiful lagoons, and lakes, and rivers. And when he had finished all of that, he decided to stay with Mother Nature up in the Blue Mountains. And while he was there, Mom, the evil one, he decided to whinge to his wife about everything Miami had made. And he went over to his wife and said, Oh, Byamie thinks he's wonderful, doesn't he? He thinks he can make anything. Uh, he thinks he's so great and so wonderful, but uh, I don't like it at all. And Mamu's wife said, Well, why don't you stop complaining? There's no need for you to whinge all the time. If you don't like what um, Miami has made, then why don't you go out and make your own earth? And Mamu, the evil one, said, I'll do one better than that. I'll destroy everything Emmy has made. So he disappeared deep into a cave. And while he was in that cave, he started making all these little animals, all these little creatures. Some had wings, some crawled, some burrowed, some had legs and some had um tons and tons of legs like hundreds of legs little legs small legs millions of legs and then they some flew and some didn't and then he sent them out bit by bit out of the cave and they started making a plague onto the earth and he sent them out to out on the earth to to destroy everything that biami had made he went out all these insects eating everything biami had made Meanwhile, Biomi came out of the cave that he was in with Mother Nature and he surveyed all his beautiful land and far off in the distance he saw this incredible little brown spot and this brown spot was growing and growing and growing and he realised what had happened and he called out to Mother Nature, Mother Nature, Mother Nature, come and see what someone has done to my beautiful earth and Mother Nature came out of her cave. And she looked and surveyed the earth around her and sure enough she saw the insects and what they were doing and she was horrified that someone would destroy the beauty that biami had made so she went deep into a cave and there she started making another animal herself it had two long legs it had a nice round body it had feathers and this incredible tail like a liar and biami said to mother nature what is this mother nature and mother nature said it's a liar bird What does it do? Well, watch. And she set the bird out of the cave. And the bird went straight to the insects and started eating. But one bird cannot eat a whole plague of insects. And so Mother Nature called out to all her friends to come and help her. And they all came. And they all started making other birds that would help eat these insects. Some of the spirits were really good. They were able to make some beautiful birds like the parrots and the lorikees and the black swans others were really bad. They weren't very good at making birds at all. So they made the little finches and the sparrows. But nevertheless, the good spirits made a lot of birds. And they sent them out of the cave. And the birds went straight to the plague of insects. And they started eating all the insects there. And when they had finished, they they waited and took over the earth. And Mother Nature said, wait until one day when Ma'amu will make another plague for you to eat. And then you will have a feast like you've never had since the beginning of time. And that is how we got our Birds, and that is how we got our insects today because of mommy the evil one and because of mother nature, thank you. Pauline's the
1: resident artist at the New South Wales Art Gallery. For some Aboriginal women learning their spiritual stories has been a journey through the maze of white preaching about Aboriginality. Theatre worker and singer Ray Kelly comes from the rainforests north of Townsville and she's just finishing
5: her thesis on spiritual healing. I think I was curious, you know, to find out what my Aboriginality was actually all about, even though I did have uh, experiences with my mum taking me out into the bush and things like that and watching my dad doing things. It just sort of didn't really have that great, you know, impact of the reality of what was really going on. And I think it would have been, I would say, the best part of 25 years that, that I really buckled down and thought, you know, hey, there's more to this that meets the eye, you know, because being brought up to in my um, westernised way of uh, religious thinking, uh, which is mission mentality that we could call it, that, you know, aboriginality, it was, was very bad, you know, then looking at the things that were going on in the westernised um, way of thinking of spirituality, I saw a lot of things there that I, I thought, oh, God, you know, that there, there must be something wrong there as well, you know, that I had to sort of really dig deep into it. And then sitting down, mostly talking to my elders, finding out why did this happen? Why is it being said that it is bad? What is the good part of it, you know? And just being taught all over again by my elders. and. Bringing back that uh, that sense of uh, awareness, that sense of uh, spirituality, that sense of respect for what I was told was wrong, and uh, when I found out that you know everything wasn't as bad as the westernised way of thinking said it was was, I went back and uh, went back to my elders, sat down with them, and got educated once again. They are the teachers of today. It's, it's not the books that are going to teach you. It is our elders who are the experts in teaching us the knowledge of our spirituality.
1: Ray's landscape is the rainforests and waterways of North Queensland. She talks of the women spirits that exist in her area and their connections to other indigenous spirits across Australia.
5: We all have um, relations to the great spiritual being who is the rainbow serpent for a start. And uh, So that there is is, is total, you know, is, is total belief all around Australia. Then, when we break it down to different symbols and significance, we have certain spiritual uh, women, uh, 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 spiritual women beings, that is interpreted in my area, which is related to cyclone women, as well as um, women who had uh, spirits that. Uh, Controlled uh, the wind, you know, like, and also had significance to certain snakes, um, also to uh, waterfalls, deep pools, where their spirit actually remains and um, just looks after that area. So, what's a cyclone woman? What would a cyclone woman do? A cyclone woman is, uh, well, it's related to the winds, mm-hmm. and um, the story goes that should anyone disturb anything in that area, they cause great winds to blow and uh, punish people. So it's sort of like a guardian spirit in a way? A guardian spirit, yeah, that that they were given the role there to stay in that area by the the great um, spirit to come and look after that area and to protect it and if anybody came and done anything wrong to it, they in turn would have to serve uh, penalties people who destroy places in that area. Now you also mentioned a woman spirit of the deep pool. What sort of spirit would that be? Well, the spirit of the deep pool is that where they are custodians, and uh, they look after the deep areas, you know, to make sure that that everybody is doing the right thing around that area, and they emerge at times. Uh, People have seen them, and they still claim today that they do see them. Where children are not allowed to swim, Even adult uh, people are not allowed to go there because that's a sacred area. And it's it's very sacred that you have to respect it.
1: In terms of, say, you know, the way a lot of other people worship and have rituals for their particular spiritual beliefs, are there particular rituals or particular practices that honour these spiritual beings?
5: Well, in the sense of uh, having uh, rituals and, and practices, like having ceremonies and things like that well it's not in the sense that you would do it in in the general sense it's it's just that they are there and that you respect those areas but when you do come them, you've got to be aware that they are there and you do the right thing by what they expect you to do mm. and that's it in a, in a nutshell
1: ray kelly on radio national you're listening to women out loud to do with the lover come to me amulet a charm to enchant the one you desire <laughs> what's meant to happen
2: what's in those little mysterious packages well it's a combination of using herbal magic it has like things like rose rose oil um oh i can't think of the top of my head you smear later? them on yourself or on an object or no because it's contained within the pouch so what you do is you use the pouch and you hold it uh-huh. and you visualize what it would mean to have someone in your arms and you imagine a pink light over you and then you smell the amulet which has got a nice smell to it and then through the smell and through the visualization and having something tactile to hold on to you then create a space for you to bring that to you because thoughts create reality so the more you have an intention or desire and a feeling that you want someone in your life then each time you pick it up hold it squeeze it visualize what it feels like or see what it looks like then you can start bringing it to you so you use it say a couple of times a day um, I mean I've had people come in here and say that to put it away because they've got too many in- you know, so it's sort of like be very careful what you ask for because you do get it.
10: So we cast the circle and we call on the four elements which are earth, air, fire and water. We call them the four directions or the guardians or whatever. We might call them north, south, east and west and we'll call the centre of the circle the centre of the space cast that and the spirit we call on the spirit which could be the spirit of the place where we happen to be celebrating that's usually when we'll call in any of um, our absent sisters who aren't able to be with us at that particular celebration and once we've done that we'll build the energy so that we can begin the ritual and that involves some kind of energy building activity like clapping or drumming or marching or dancing or chanting or silence or um whatever happens to fit into the um intent of that particular evening and we'll have usually worked all this out beforehand like what sequence we will do stuff and sort of sketched basically um, the plan of the ritual which might be um, that we decide we want to do drumming or something just so that we've got some idea of what's actually happening. Then we'll move into what we call the body of the ritual which is where everyone has the opportunity to actually declare their intent to cast a spell if you like to focus the energy that has been built for whatever purpose um, that is important for them. This is where we usually begin to work separately, with that work being witnessed by the other women in the circle. Um, So each woman will come forward um, in no particular order and just do whatever it is she feels called upon to do. There's usually some framework that's been laid out beforehand. You know, we might all have been discussing ideas in common. The ritual that I did you know the other night I put out materials that people could use how they chose to use them was up to them but there was that common thread in what was available um, so there is some commonality in terms of what they actually um, do or we might have formulated um, some words for the ritual with you know blank spaces where women can actually say what is appropriate to them but some kind of um commonality in what they invoke and how they actually tie that off. And so that work is um, witnessed and sealed by the other women in the circle. What do you mean by sealed? Well, usually if someone's casting a a spell or whatever, when they have ended that, the whole circle will say something like, well, blessed be, or so be it, or something like that. is just like a completion. That's right. (laughs) Wraps it up. Once um, everybody's done that, then there'll be some kind of activity which helps us to break that or ground the energy, not in any kind of um, sense of dissonance. So we might have some kind of rousing song. Like we've actually got this really neat tradition of um, corrupting popular songs like ABBA or um, oh, I started a new tradition the other day by um, rewriting Hello Dolly. Um, <laughs> so it's great and we'll all, like really get into that and jump around or whatever or we might just do a chant that is familiar to us or something like that. And then we basically release the circle and that's it you know that's basically um, what we do now what women do with that in their everyday lives is up to them like for me it's not just coming together to celebrate um, publicly every now and again I tend to use the celebrations and the rituals as an opportunity to mark what's happening in my life and then from that I'll usually take something back into my everyday life and continue to work with that until the next celebration or the next point in that particular cycle.
1: Magic and ritual were a part of women's spiritual history until the great witch hunt of the 15th to 17th centuries where reportedly millions of women were executed across Europe. The patriarchs exerted their control over religion, science and medicine, condemning midwives and wise women to death. But these days there's been a great resurgence in magic and you can find magic shops, herbal medicines and crystals just about everywhere. Helen Glissick runs Dragon's Parlour, a magic shop in the centre of Sydney. to magic said to you Helen
2: you're really bastardizing this by charging people for these things and making it so open well it's not necessary I mean you can never sell magic I don't sell magic I sell the tools of magic there is a slight difference and I don't necessarily think what I'm doing is bastardizing it it's more um, that people are are interested in it and what I've done is put together a group of products which uh, they can use as tools to create and they are the the power, the person using the the, uh, tools are the ones that have the power and it's just laying it down and sort of like having an intention behind the action which then creates so it's not it's based on traditional magic and yet it's not, it's got I find that um, you can get into magic in different ways and I've just chosen to do it in a way which is very gentle people out there who don't know anything about magic tend to be sort of daunted by the fact. so what we've attempted to do is to give it to the individual who can um, take it for whatever it is. I mean, people buy, say, the spell through three wishes. You know, and sometimes it's just for a laugh, and that's great. You know, if it brings someone a little bit of joy because someone's given them three wishes and they never use it, that's done its job. If someone wants to then create something and think, wow, I really believe in this, and they do get their wishes, then that's great too. Uh, it's accessible to everyone. It's not just for the elite. It's not for people just that are doing Wicca and you know go by the, the Wiccan traditions, which is great. I you know fully support that in one way and yet I support people in discovering things for themselves and that's how this came about. It's not a matter of that it had to be this way or that way. It just sort of started to blossom and people and I've introduced other things that don't necessarily relate solely to magic but are related to it enough so that people sort of feel that they can sort of enter in here find out about those things because they're familiar with them like say candles and then start asking about the spells or the you know the lover come to me amulets and things like that so it sort of it gives them two ways of looking at it either that they can take it very lightly or they can start to delve into the spell side of things and that's ultimately up to them i just act here in a thousand question i ask it answer it the best way i can
1: how do you view the commercialisation of women's spirituality? You know, the crystal shops, the magic spells that you can buy, the perfumes that you can
8: anoint yourself with and all those sort of things. What do you think about that? I actually teach the section on the New Age in the New Religious Movements course here at the University of Sydney and I actually call my lecture on the New Age spiritual materialism. Because this is one of the things that's very interesting. Ancient world religions would have found no problem with it. They believed, not in this great divide between the spirit and the body, but that the gods really brought prosperity. And if the gods loved you and they favoured your king or your queen, then your crops would be good and you would receive everything, this abundance in real life. So in some ways, I'd say that the crystal shops, And the tarot readers at Glebe Markets, they're right in there in the spirit of the late classical world and I bet Rome, Athens, Corinth in a hundred Christian era or a hundred before Christian era would have been exactly like that. And that for people to grow rich Outer spirituality is not new. Priests and priestesses were the first groups in society who didn't actually have to work at subsistence tasks. They grew rich of other people's labor because they provided access to the sacred and access to the sacred had to be paid for. The Catholic Church is the same. The wonderful L. Ron Hubbard, the man, a man I, I admire for his innovation and for his business skill, though not for his spiritual message, said in his great work, What is Scientology? under the commonly asked questions page. The first question is if Scientology is so great and is a universal truth, why is it not free? And L. Ron replied, "For you do not value what you do not pay for." That's
2: kind of stuff isn't In too like? serious. I mean, you take I okay. take myself too seriously, so.
8: Well, let's get very
1: light then. Okay. Let's fairy talk about dust. fairy dust.
2: It's <laughs> fairy dust. I no, th- it's it's quite cute, isn't
1: it? Sort of it's little um. True. What is it exactly? <laughs> we well,
2: see what fairies like to be around is fun things. So mm-hmm. it's made of spices that they like and glitter, and you just sprinkle it. I mean, one of the things I find joyous to do here is that we have sprinkle, which we sprinkle through our products and we call it a uh, fairy sprinkle. And you can do it with the fairies' dust as well. And what you do is you get them to close their eyes and you say, look, make a wish. And you sort of say, okay, you know, have you got your wish? And then you sprinkle it all around them. So when they open their eyes, they've got all this dust all over them. And you know, it's to remind them that they've asked for this wish and the fairies have come to give it to them. So it's a very light thing. I mean, people send it through the mail. People sort of sprinkle it through important documents just to take the seriousness out of things. And people say, well, how does it work? I don't know how it works. I just know that when people use it in the right vein, it makes them smile, and that's what it's about. And people sort of like go, "But well, I've got all sprinkle over me. Fine. You know, do it at a dinner party. Sprinkle all your guests as they come in." Have you ever done that, Helen? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they sort of thought it was a bit strange. That's all right. I don't mind. But I bet they did laugh. They did because it mm. brings a lightness to the to the the space, and that's what it's about. This is it's not about that you have to be too serious with it. It's about like we've got unicorns milk which is the most delightful bath. It's like full of petals and it's milky. and But that's false advertising, isn't it, really? I mean, unicorns milk, really. Important.
1: No, not at all.
2: <laughs> We've got the unicorns out the back. <laughs> <laughs> They're out the back of this city building here. Now yes. it's, um, what's unicorns milk meant to do for you, though? It's basically the reason why we designed it originally was that uh, people need to be comforted. It's like, uh-huh. it's when the times when you need to turn the electric blanket up to mother, mm-hmm. and you need to nurture and comfort yourself if you're feeling a bit down. So unicorns are known for their purity, and their purity of thought and their their comfort. Mm. So consequently, unicorns milk. So it's almost like it's, com- it's coming from, a like the mythology of it, is coming from a space that people really want to believe it. And yet there's no, I mean, people go, oh, unicorn's milk and whatever. And yeah, okay, it's the, it's the wording. Somewhere in the back of their consciousness, they go, wow, unicorn's milk. And they want to believe that it's unicorn's milk. It's not unicorn's milk, but it's what they want to believe. So it's like it gives them a space in which they can create that comfort, that, that nurturing they need.
1: Well, whatever you get up to this weekend, I do hope it's inspiring. The women
4: you've heard tonight maintain goddesses, give them power and strength. Julie Cunningham. They have to be unearthed, um, and I think that's that's the thing for us now is to concentrate on the dark goddesses because that's what what we need to do as women. The Why? Because the the white end, the ovulating Mary Madonna end, has, has been honoured for a long time, like women as mothers. But we need to give birth to our psychic selves, our deeply embodied selves, our dreaming. Imagining ourselves, uh, our own child, you know, to use that New Age phrase. But why do you think that's important, Julie? Be- oh. <laughs> because your lives are just so much more enriched when you're contacting that part of yourself. You know, to, to accept that end of yourself and that it's okay to, to be more intense and to say things that you wouldn't normally say and to, to bleed to be messy you know in that way and that um, I mean they call you know these pads like protection protection against what Um, (laughs) protection against embarrassment I suppose but you know really like we bleed boys and you know and I'll just talk about it anywhere now I'll talk about it in a lift at a restaurant you know
6: me personally it has been a real affirmation of my being in a way that patriarchally biased stories and metaphors and images never could Uh, adrian rich has described women in a patriarchal culture as wildly unmothered and uh, these goddess metaphors have enabled me to find the mother in myself and my center my backbone my guts and to uh, my at oneness with being and i think a lot of women find that they find um the goddess metaphor very nurturant um for living their lives
1: in a world however where women just don't have equal rights and certainly all over the world you know some women have a particularly hard life yes why why is this important
6: uh well i think (laughs) i think for one woman and then collectively for women to find their guts and their backbone they would no longer tolerate the kind of abuse that they now tolerate world worldwide when women get more in touch with their strength and their power they'll no longer tolerate this kind of thing
1: isn't it the case however that in cultures where goddesses are still revered like in india and um in other cultures um or even in in prehistory cultures just because people worship goddesses didn't mean that women were treated any better
6: i well i think um You know, over the years, things have gotten so uh, corrupted and uh, lots of different influences come in over the thousands of years. I mean, I think um, you couldn't really say that in India, you know, the goddess Kali, for instance, is revered as she once was maybe thousands of years ago. Thousands of years ago, I think probably Kali was understood in a fuller way than she is now. And so the Kali that one sees now is fairly heavily patriarchally influenced, and, and uh, so her metaphor and her story has been probably severely damaged. So, uh, and, uh, But there are other things that come out of the goddess tradition, like Tantra, where there is a lot of balance uh, of female and male energy, and it's still very good. So there
1: are different streams, um, and it's, it's quite complex. It sure is. Well, that's all from us this week. And if you haven't had quite enough of goddesses, and you live in Sydney, or you'll be passing through over the next few weeks, you can catch Julie Cunningham's exhibition, Paraphernalia of the Sacred and Erotic, at Maud Space in Glebe Point Road, Glebe. Who's Got the Goddess was brought to you by Kath Duncan, Kirsty Melville and Judy Rapley. Thanks to Louise Zamati. and for the interview of Maria Gambutis and the commentary True Sounds Recording in Colorado. See you next Saturday. You're with Radio National and coming up next, Away, just after the news.